clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome back to Ots Tyrion. Uh, here I am once again, your co-host Jordan Cruciola, and I am with Sam Weinman, and I am also with Chelsea Stardust. Hey. <laughs> We, the, there you go. Spoiler, everybody. We have, we are not alone in the room. Me and Sam sorry, have Jordan, a Jordan, did very... I just fuck this up again? Do I, I guys, no. I do this every week. I just like spoil, are we supposed to wait for her? I'm so bad at this intro stuff. No, it's fine. It's fine. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just, we'll just keep going. It's okay. Um, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's our podcast. We can make fucking rules. Um, but the bottom line is, the bottom line is, it is Christmas time. It is, we are, we are now in the month of December. It is official. And so in addition to this being a thematically millennium horror associated podcast, this is also now today a Christmas millennium horror associated podcast. So Chelsea, what is it that we're here to discuss by your, this was your choice. So what are we here to talk about today? Yes, um, we are here to talk about the 2006 Glenn Morgan Black Christmas Fuck you, Santa Claus. Yes. This movie is so good. This movie is, in fact, so good. And we just lost all of our straight listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now that they've left the room, it's just us. It's just us. Um, Why? Now, why, why was this your selection, Chelsea? Yes. So um, this was my pick for like a couple of reasons. I like love this film, but I think it's also like a very, um, well, another reason we're talking about it, but I think it's actually incredibly underrated. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I saw just to give like a little backstory and like my relationship with this film, I Mm -hmm. saw this, um, the 2006 Black Christmas um, in theaters when I was in college, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen the original yet. Right. So I, I saw this one first. This was definitely the first Black Christmas I saw, definitely. I think that's for, like, a, a lot of people of our um, generation, but I, I didn't have the original as a reference point yeah. that um, a lot of people who ended up going to see it and were, like, not stoked about it, which is also something that happened with the most recent remake, quote unquote, of it as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went into this movie loving the X-Files, loving the Final right. Destination franchise, mm-hmm. and loving Willard. So I was already headed to the theater excited because I was a yeah. Glenn Morgan and James Wong fan. And mm-hmm. honestly, I just loved the experience. I thought it was this super gory, really fun, over-the-top Christmas color soaked wild ride and I but it also made me seek out like immediately seek out the original Black Christmas right after seeing this and mm. of course it, I was like oh this is a work of genius like yeah. but I also loved <laughs> yeah but I also loved that um Bob Clark was involved in this particular remake so mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. like 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 I own the the DVD that's actually kind of hard to come by but um he's on if you watch the the extra features which I've watched all of them on the disc okay, okay. he's he's on set and they he talks about it and why he's like loving the you know this remake and that they're not trying to really remake his and they're trying to sort of like um unthread Billy and Agnes and like you know he was happy about it and that they weren't making it they weren't going into it making it as like mainstream as like the Texas Chainsaw remake the Halloween remake like they were kind of doing something a little bit different with it um but uh yeah so you know there's just little we'll get into it more but there's so many things about it and I just I've always kind of like unapologetically loved it which is something the that, only like, way to love the only way to love yeah stop and, apologizing and, people <laughs> well I will say like when I prepared my TED talk which I can do like whenever for you it's basically my love letter to why I love this Wait, why this Chelsea, podcast that wasn't your TED talk it wasn't my TED talk <laughs> oh, well hold on <laughs> 
Wait, so you loved it when it came out. Like, immediately this worked for you. Jordan, did yeah. it work for you immediately? Yeah. It, I, 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 and maybe it's nostalgia and, and, and at this moment in time when I, when I rewatched it, I, I mean, I was just enraptured and maybe it was just like a love for this, uh, the movie itself. And then also for the era that made these things that we're spending so much time celebrating that like compounded it. I had, I thought it was fun as hell. And I am what, I mean, as we have talked about so many times before the, the crucialness of the ensemble cast to tank top horror, this ensemble is off it is it is unbelievable i mean that we have we got lacey chabert in the house we've got mary elizabeth winstead doing half a southern accent we've got michelle trachtenberg like oh my we've got katie cassidy the final girl of the 2000s that was never able to ascend to the potential she really had within her to lead all three of the remakes that she appeared in which she should have but is given her rightful place as a final girl in Black Christmas. I wow. mean, and it just, this movie, there's so much of the era in this movie. There is that cast. There is a very sad mystery. There is. We a, love a sad mystery. There it's aughts, folks. It is the 2000s, <laughs> and there is a very a sad, sad mystery. mystery. Because true to the 2000s, they have to take the foundational material and then make it sicker and sadder and crazier and make, make you us feel, feel bad. Make you feel bad about it. There's a very sad mystery. There's the ensemble cast. And there's the absolutely soaked lighting. I mean, this movie looks beautiful. And the Christmas color palette is such a best use case of that 2000 super saturation aesthetic. Like, and I mean, the brunette representation in this movie. Tremendous. Shouts out to you, Kristen Cloak. Super babe coming in as the yeah the older the older legacy sister who shows up to save her her doomed half to half sister just i mean what and I'm a, always i, I appreciate i had fun at the time and i so appreciate it in the present the casting the ensemble um the uh victoria's secret wardrobe ensemble that <laughs> yeah. uh he puts together because what wow. I what I what I love is that like if you literally go on the Victoria's Secret website and look at the loungewear, it's like matching like everything they're wearing. But um, <laughs> he the the casting is so perfect because everyone is kind of on the same playing field, so mm-hmm. you're not really sure who's gonna make it out alive. You aren't the fact which is that so we genius. Lacey Chabert when we do yeah, is a, Queen Lacey Chabert launching it, her Hallmark you know career in this movie. My God! See, this is and this is the this is the imperative cultural analysis, Sam, well, with your PhD. She went on to make like I I mean definitely over a dozen Christmas movies, right? I mean, really, we're hand, we're taking that crown right now and we're handing it to Vanessa Hudgens because if you haven't seen Princess Switch, Twist again, <laughs> like hit pause and just go do it. Just go uh, because, do it. Uh, what is your what are you even doing it's a pandemic <laughs> yeah. you haven't seen this get on so, it but but then Lacey Chabert made everything which I would argue peaks at Christian Mingle you know <laughs> Hallmark's most racist uh, Christmas movie my oh, god wow. um it's just a, a bonkers apeshit Christmas show where they end up in Mexico <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Christian Mingle we are here to talk about Black Xmas with Lacey Chabert and I will say this if you're listening right now and you were like, yeah, but I didn't like it at first, neither did I. So okay. I want to be the voice of Oh, this of is great. No, dissension. no, no, this is great. Yeah. I love this. So I, I have been doing, as you've probably heard if you listened before, I do these movie nights that we constantly talk about and never explain. Um, <laughs> once a week where I watch um, a double feature and it's themed after something. And at Christmas, we found out that Black Christmas was going to be made into, you know, a horror movie that year in the 2000s. So we were like, okay, we'll watch the old one together. And we put it on thinking like, oh, this is going to be trash because we love to like talk at movies. Um, yeah. Because we're queer. So obviously. So we put on <laughs> Black Christmas. It, it's so chilling that like nobody can sleep, right? Because that movie holds up. Margot Kidder, <laughs> yeah. amazing. And then oh, that became my incredible. favorite movie. So watching the trailer for Black Xmas, which uh, I like think is the differentiation um, That's fair. It was yeah, the 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 big X taking the Christ out of Christmas. Um, watching the trailer <laughs> for that was like its own experience because it was fun and you knew going into it it was going to be a good time. And there yeah. there was like there was like a girl reaching out from a fucking pond. There was like a crazy lights machine eating somebody alive. Somebody falls off a roof and like hangs himself. So uh-huh. then you get to the movie theater 
and none of those deaths are in the movie. So Shit. my friends and I were watching it going, what the fuck are we watching? Because uh-huh. what has Why been is everyone just getting us, stabbed through their fucking eyes? And, and dying off screen. So yeah. we couldn't. We like watching the theatrical cut of Black Xmas was a disappointing experience for somebody who loved mm. the original and then mm-hmm. thought, oh, they're making something like fully camp and okay. saw that trailer. What I didn't realize was that it was going to become a movie night staple and that we would watch it every July for Christmas in July and every <laughs> right. Christmas because it quickly <laughs> became our favorite so bad it's good. But over time, I have come around <laughs> to realize that it's actually just good (laughs) it's just fucking good much like the roommate it is actually just good no it's it's i it is and and, in much like the hitcher this is like an 80 90 minute movie like the time is not wasted and every like I, i the kills are so much fun but they're and you're like you're getting it's a high density violence movie but like the the ensemble is so tremendous. I know that when I watch it, my the only thing I get bummed about is that I don't get more time with them just being sorority sisters because yes. I like those group scenes. But at the same time, I really appreciate the efficiency of how it just gets you in, starts the fucking murders, and sends you on your way. And also now Billy is yellow. Yes. Chelsea, I have to ask because I know you go to the New Bev to see Black Christmas every year as as do I, except for this year because obviously we're all um, sick. But like with <laughs> the one of the previous screenings, this thing happened there that I think is really emblematic of exactly the thing that we oppose in this podcast and like why we're even doing this. But they were raffling um, items, you know, if you're with your ticket stub and um, you know the, the horror bros that host it. I'm sure they're great guys. They whatever. Um, they and they, the prize that night was a black Xmas poster. And so they raffled it off to the audience, and I wanted it so bad. And some <laughs> other guy, you know, some basement kid, walks up and takes the poster and rips it in half, and the entire audience cheers. Oh, because my the hosts God. of so that event have been talking down to the Black Xmas remake the entire time. They're like, oh, I don't know why Tarantino likes this movie. He made us run it tonight. And then they ripped the fucking poster. I almost up and left, except I wanted to see the next movie. So, but that is exactly That's, the attitude. That I am just culture. sitting here, listeners, so, jaw agape at this <laughs> horror. I'm being told. I think they this cheer. is, this is okay. So that story is okay. Uh, for listeners, apologies in advance. This is it. Because <laughs> Sam just gave me the okay, best this, segue this it. to it. This is it. <laughs> this is it. Um, it's, 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 uh, I, I basically like when I knew I was going to be on this with you guys, I, and I, when I heard about the podcast actually originally, um, which I think Jordan had told me, um, you were working on this and I have to say it's, I know, and I know this is like the early stages of the podcast, but I typed, so I immediately typed something up when you asked me to be a guest, and <laughs> I, I titled it The Importance of Austerion. So Sam's segue is so perfect, and you will see why. <laughs> yes. If you're not interested in my TED Talk, just like fast forward like, you know, a 30 seconds, 45 seconds, because I'll keep it quick. She's like, just I give me pr- 10 minutes prepared. and then come back. If it's you're not a prepared speech. Yeah, if you're not interested, please, we don't Bye. unsubscribe. Unsubscribe if you're not interested. Leave a yeah. one-star yeah. review and 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 a real review, which we will read aloud. <laughs> okay, all right, deep breath. Okay, um, so this is the, to me, the importance of Austerion, a, Austerion, a love letter to Jordan and Sam. Oh, um, <laughs> Christmas gift. I am not a child of the 80s. Well, not really. I was born in 1985, so I have very little recollection of that time. I'm a child of the 90s and early 2000s. And you know what? I'm not ashamed of that. I've been made to feel ashamed of that by a lot of horror film lovers that are older than I am. There's a weird sort of arrogance towards anyone who is currently in their 20s and 30s and a fan of films from the 90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you less of 
a horror fan if you love films made in these decades? Of course not. And yes, I am a fan of films made during that time. Of course, just like so many people older than me are fans of every fucking horror film made in the 80s. <laughs> Absolutely Nos- every fucking one of them. Yep. Uh, nostalgia goes both ways, guys. Yes. Yes. Movies that you see in your teens are the ones that shape you. I would get a lot of shit for not seeing some random direct-to-VHS 80s horror film, but usually by someone who has at least 10 to 15 years of movie viewing ahead of me. I'm only 35, y'all. As someone who has played... (laughs) As someone who has played a lot of various horror trivia near and far, I've noticed there's a blatant disregard for films made in the 90s and the 2000s. And just, like, new horror in general for some reason. There's right. maybe... Sorry. Yes, yeah, Sam... No, no. Sam and I have talked I'm about just, this, like, yes! extensively. Yes. <laughs> There's maybe one or two rounds a year about films from these decades. And I think And we fucking this, ace it, don't we? And every time we win. <laughs> every our time that's our round, girl. Every time. We win every time. <laughs> They're too scared. I, They're too scared of you. That's it. The pills were in the doll in Halloween Resurrections, guys. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sorry. Please go. Please. I I No, no. It's wrapping up. It's wrapping up. Um, So I think this podcast is important because you're shining a light on a lot of films that are so quickly ignored and dismissed because of the time they were made. And there is a stubbornness for being open-minded that, you know, kind of surrounds them, too. But if we millennials are able to patiently listen to the constant nostalgia for 80s horror, which don't get me wrong, I love a ton of films from the 80s. I love so many of them. Love. But then you can at least give a little respect to us and our love of horror films made in the decade we grew up in and hear why we love these films, why they are important to us, and why they inspire us to be filmmakers and creatives. Long live millennial horror. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Yes! Yes! I love yes. it! Chelsea, can I just say that was so beautifully said? That was, it was beautiful. Oh, stop. That was beautiful. I, if I, I, I would, it. if you are, uh, if you're listening right now and you want to relive that moment, I will be posting that to Instagram <laughs> in its full text uh, because I think that it's important that everybody read that. I, I, uh, thank you. And I'm just, you know what? I'm, I, after like kind of like hearing all this podcast and listening to it, it made me realize how I am so, especially like, I think I, I feel like sometimes it's extra hard um, as a woman within this genre, but I'm so tired of having to prove myself and having to prove what kind of fan I am and that I've seen all these movies and that like, you know, and half the time it's by people who at least have 10 to 15 years are at least 10 to 15 years older than me. And I'm like, yeah, that's like that much more time you've had to watch movies. Like I'm still catching up. I fully understand, you know, like I hadn't seen Hammer movies before this year. It was a blind spot. I filled it because I just felt like, I guess I got it. I got to see these. When Chelsea commits to filling a knowledge gap, there is no fucking stone left unturned. So, like, when it's like, oh, I need to catch up on Hammer Horror, she needs literally every Hammer Horror. She's going to watch all of them. When she's like, oh, it's time for Bava, it is, like, going straight through that chronology, watching every fucking Bava. So when she says, like, when I started watching this thing, you can be assured (laughs) that it was a comprehensive investigation into the entirety of whatever category it is she is committed to watching. Just so clear. And also, like, I love movies and I love horror movies, yeah. but I and I and I love things from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, like that. They yep. all everything influences me. However, yep. I think this podcast is so important because people kind of need to, you know, honestly, like you look at there. There's a whole generation after us that don't even know about these movies and they're going to discover yep. these movies through the newer remakes. Like, like that's yep. how, like that's even how Sam was saying, like seeing black, knowing black Christmas is going to get remade, seeking out the original, seeing that. And that, so it's like, but you know, things, I just think that, um, I love that you're looking at these again, sort of reevaluating them. It's sort of like, um, uh, and, and also because times have changed so much from when these movies, they have and they haven't, but when these movies came out, it's sort of right. like when we were all, we decided which Jordan and Sam are both on the forefront of this. Uh, 
y'all need to check yourselves and we need to reassess Jennifer's body. Like it's, it's part of all of that. It's like all part of that. And it's like, Uh yeah, there are some, there are some really horrible movies that people love made in the eighties that are are honestly just not good. But there's a nostalgia for it. Whereas I think these, like you can, it's the same thing where it's like, yeah, that, it's because of this part of this movie from the 2000s that made me want to be a filmmaker. Like, final, you guys know this, but Final Destination mm-hmm. is my favorite franchise. Like, that, and then maybe Halloween. Like, yeah. are my favorite franchises. So, and again, Final Destination mm-hmm. came out in 2000. So it's like, <laughs> that, oh, it, we, that... It will be, we, there, we, that stone will be unturned as well on this podcast. Anyways, back to Black Christmas, but I, I'm, thank you for letting me uh, express all of that, because as Sam knows, I have kept this inside of me for so long, <laughs> and I was like, why, why are people so against seeing new horror? This is what yeah. we're going to talk about, like, we're talking about the thing, like, we talk about Carrie, like, we, in, yeah. like, decades from now, the new stuff is what we're going to talk about, and now a couple, some time has passed since a lot of these movies came out, let's talk about them, and I get so excited about that, and I, and I hope with this podcast, people will listen and then go revisit these movies with a little more open mind and be like, oh yeah, this is probably what influenced something like someone like I have made or whatnot. So anyways, thank you all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if the people around you are not having these conversations, yeah. then you need to encourage them to get on the Oregon Trail and be the pioneers <laughs> that we are because it's time. Um, I want to say it's also okay to model being wrong. You know, a lot of people didn't like Jennifer's body when it came out and they were wrong. So let's Mm -hmm. help them by (laughs) when we're wrong about something like I was with Black Christmas immediately. um, Uh Investigate why. I investigated why. So I'd like to share my findings. No, I was going to say, I was, <laughs> yes. I was, I was going to say, when did you reach your turning point in your annual so, viewings of black, of Xmas, of black Xmas? It actually didn't take us, me personally long or my group to realize that what we had been doing, what was wrong about what we had been doing is that we had expected Margot Kidder and you can't yeah. expect an icon twice. <laughs> like Margot Kidder is Fair. doing something so special in this movie. Yeah. She's my favorite uh, horror character of all time. Uh, her performance in that. Uh, yes. uh, but I think I went in expecting one thing and I got something else. And it, and mm-hmm. I felt like, I thought maybe because it was something else, it was like when you order something on the Wish app and it shows up and it's like garbage. It wasn't <laughs> actually. It was just somebody sent me something different. And so right, when yeah. we watched it again for our annual screening, a year later, we were like, oh, wait a second. This is like... <laughs> This is a modern day exploitation film. Looking at it yes. through the lens of something like Freeway, um, mm-hmm. if, which, you know, Reese Witherspoon, in my, it's my favorite Reese Witherspoon movie. Um, something like Freeway, where it is a, just a, a, a balls to the wall example of something that we haven't seen since the, since the 70s without tapping into something like replicating its style, like you yeah. were talking about leaning into nostalgia. Um, Black Xmas really is an exploitation film. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That defines that decade by using all the tools that we see in the aughts, uh, like palette. Yeah. I want to say, though, the reason why, and I blame the Weinsteins for this, um, because it's, yeah. I do think that, I think that the movie's marketing, much like a lot of films at the time, like Jennifer's Body, the movie's marketing set us the up to not like The boy run media. The boy run media. So, the boy run media issues a trailer with all of these different deaths, right? It even has an actress featured prominently who is not even in the film. Now, how did this happen? <laughs> well, okay. apparently, the mo- after the movie was shot, the Weinsteins weren't happy with it, and so they were afraid people wouldn't see it or something, and they shot without, behind the director's back, shot, all, shot extra footage just for the trailer. Not scenes. Not scenes, which is why yeah. it doesn't exist on the bonus content of the DVD. Just footage. They straight up lied. They said this is the movie when it's not. Fuck. The hand and the eye. So the hand coming out of the pond, the same actress as the person that comes off the roof. The same thing as the the the, the crazy lights machine. And there's actually even they had Michelle Trachtenberg come back for a, a TV spot where she has a shotgun and cocks it, and she says, "Merry Christmas, mother." <laughs> Which is, I mean, I wish it was in that movie. Wow, okay, but that's one I could Such done a departure yeah. from what we're watching, right? Yeah. Like, this is, what, what, the, what the TV spots and the trailer did was create an expectation for a film that didn't exist. So, mm-hmm. if you're, and, and the director himself said, his, if you're going to the movie because of what you saw in the trailer, you're going to be disappointed. Or, if you don't like what you see in the trailer, you'll never go see the movie. So, yeah. it sets up a situation where there is no way to win. 
And also, the two killers thing that happens in this movie, the Weinsteins forced it. It wasn't supposed to be two killers. It was just supposed to be Billy. So, throwing all of this in here for us as we understand what the movie is, Uh the things that that come under the most fire are actually just gigantic mistakes that didn't allow people at the time to fully embrace the film for what it was. It is sure a shame when you just watch a studio cut the Achilles tendon of a movie and then shove it out onto the stage to dance. But also to that, to piggyback off of what Sam said, this movie also didn't have, um, didn't do press previews. There were no press previews for it, which is also the Weinstein setting up for it to, or Dimension setting up for it to fail. And I was, and I just was doing like a little prelim because I was curious because in 2006 when I was in college and saw this, I wasn't reading reviews and I still don't read reviews of things. But um, so currently, like, I was like, where does this stand? So currently it has a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes of critics, 37% for audience. Yeah. And then I went and looked at a couple reviews, like just, just to see. And Dread Central gave it a two out of five, but they also, so this is right when it came out. So they would have just, because it came out on Christmas day in 20, 2006. Yeah. And they, but they also like within the review, they said that Billy and Agnes are played by the same actor. They are not. That is incorrect. Um, there were just some things where I was like, that's not right. Sam is nodding. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I want to jump in about Agnes, but I'm going to wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that, so that's what, so I was looking, I'm like, oh, that's interesting for Dread Central. Obviously, New York Times hated it. Variety hated it. And then in 2014, I noticed that Bloody Disgusting, um, Jess Hicks revisited it and praised it. So there was, you know, that was 2014, so still a couple years ago, but someone like revisited it and talked about how fun this movie is. So can you imagine getting a note from the Weinsteins that you don't want to follow? You're like, hmm, we have an extra killer. What should we do? Oh, fucking cast the first AC. He'd make a creepy lady. <laughs> of the mood. Like, the the first assistant camera who's pulling focus for everything is the same. A- it played the actor of Agnes. So. I I do. And, and this is something that I do talk about in the doc that is not out right now. But, I you know, talking about the, the ways that we represent um, bodies in horror and the idea of casting a man in the role of a woman to make her grotesque or monstrous or other well and here's and i think this is this touches on a conversation that it is so 2000s about this movie and it's something that we talk about a lot together sam which is the and i think this extends to that sort of that sort of exploitation casting that sort of hag exploitation casting that 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 ends up sort of being yes this is a really mean decade this is a cruel decade this is a callous decade and it is generally in pop culture and there's this feedback loop between the people making things and the people writing about things that seems to reinforce this state of perpetual cruelty and demand that things almost be more so by the 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 vitriol of the conversation around so much in pop culture it sort of it sort of almost like implicitly requests that things be uglier that they be meaner that they be sicker and I, I think that's I think that feeds into the very sad mystery aspect of things and I think that makes a a, a thing that really struck me when I was rewatching this movie is how much like a theme in this movie is that everyone has like almost everyone has a biological sister that they fucking hate. Like (laughs) we meet Lacey Chabert's character saying like, I'd like to bury the hatchet with my sister. Right in her head. (laughs) And then we have, and then we have, um, we have Lauren, Crystal Lowe's character. She's vomiting in a toilet at one point because she's gotten too wasted on Christmas. And Michelle Trachtenberg's holding back her hair. And Lauren's like, you're a better sister to me than my own sister. And Michelle Trachtenberg's like, yeah, and Dick Cheney's a better sister to you than your sister. And like the and and you have um, Kristen Cloak showing up to con- like establish a relationship for the first time with her young half sister who's 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 already been murdered and like she's she's gonna do her best to make a connection but she shows up mean impatient I I, I can't tell you anything about this place because I really fucking hated it here then suddenly she's like grouchy struck with the need to then save her sister when she realizes she's imperiled but she's like been astray like everybody who has a sister in this movie has a shitty sister and they all also 
hate each other at the start, pretty much, when they're all convened around the hearth in the opening of the movie. But the arc that this movie gives you of them coming together in spite yes. of their petty bullshit is actually really satisfying. So by the time you get to, like, you have enough girls left who are being allies to one another, with the exception of Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character, who says a selfish bitch till the very end. Yeah, yeah, run to daddy. At least my family wants me to come home. You have, you actually watch these, like, 19, 20-year-old, like, sorority brats come around to one another in a way that with the you're my family now sentiment that is so pervasive in this movie she's my family now like you have it actually start to feel something (laughs) by the end of this movie sam you are chomping at the bit well a couple of things but i'm gonna be there's just this points me to the things that i love about the film both good and bad um the introduction of the sister uh is shot like a cameo. The older sister shows up. No. There's like this big Kristen, moment. She busts through the door. Kristen shows up. Kristen goes, and it's like, oh fuck, somebody from the original. And then I looked and I was like, wait, th- no, this is just a, somebody. This is just a person. <laughs> yeah. and then, but, but I do yeah, want to, but with Lisa Hussey, Chabert. Not Margot yeah, not, it, is, it could have been anybody, but no, <laughs> this is just a person who we don't learn a whole lot about. But <laughs> earlier, no, like, Sam, something I, that I, when, I, when it's been a long time since I've watched this movie and I watch it again, I find myself re-Googling every time the original cast and being like, where's Kristen Cloak? They, they really feature this cameo hard. And I'm yeah. reminded every time, no, she's just here. And they just super dramatized her entry into the yep. story with her incredible jaw. Filling oh my God, that jaw. Honestly, <laughs> that's fucking, to me, that kind of introduction is drag. I'm Claire's sister. Where is she? I mean, it's just, <laughs> we are here. It is, this is over the top. This yeah. is, I, I am making an entrance because I am me. And then somebody's going to look at me and be like, I love that coat. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was just like, wow. Okay. Spotlight on you. But the part yeah. that I love that I think really is, uh, it, it sets up the tone for what is successful about this film so mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. is the clunky way that Lacey Chabert moment that you referenced about her sister, the movie itself makes a meal out of that moment. She's like, <laughs> I'd like to bury the hatchet. And then, mm-hmm. zo- slow like, push in. Music drops out, slow Everything. push in. We've got, and yeah. it's glamorous lighting. And then, <laughs> in her head. <laughs> this is drag. It sets it up like there is almost no question in your mind that her sister is going to show up and be the killer. Like, there's well, almost... It's so important that we know her sister is a horrible bitch that surely she will be involved in this plot somehow. This movie takes every opportunity to wink at itself. And I like that. Like (laughs) that moment, like when that pushing, when she says the hatchet line, it gives you enough time to think, well, maybe they're not going to say in her head because that would be too predictable. (laughs) And then it's like, nope. We're going to say it. We just wanted to set it up that way. You know what? In the psych ward, you're like, oh, maybe this isn't like, maybe this is a little bit serious. And then it's like, they open, they slide open one of the windows and it's Jesus. And he's like, happy birthday. (laughs) Wow. Am I in scary movie five? Like, this this movie knows exactly what it is. It is not trying to be anything but that. It is not, and, and a, a tiny moment that is so important in, in GIF form that I have sent you, Sam, when I watch this, is when they are all gathered around the fireplace in the beginning, and Lauren is, like, reading Mary Elizabeth Rinstead, the riot act, about, like, fuck your Christian <laughs> traditions. This is a hodgepodge of pagan iconography, you dumbass. Yes. And she's just getting increasingly drunk as she hates on the Southern Christian girl. And there's a part where that's building up with this character. We're getting to see that she's like getting lit by herself on this night. And she takes like a, throws back a shot. What is it? Lacey Chabert's character is like, just like, you don't need to give her a Christmas present. Just give her a shot. And she like, yep. Passes her a shot, throws it back. Michelle Trachtenberg goes, happy holidays. Right after Lauren takes the shot, we cut to Katie Cassidy, who just makes the most random featured reaction where she kind of like, sadly shrugs her shoulders and like purses out her lips a little bit and it's like i don't know what they edited that reaction in from during this scene but i don't know if it was in response to that shot or not when they were getting coverage but the fact that they chose to put it there was like what the fuck 
is this variety show that I'm in right now. Truly. Te- tequila, tequila with a red wine chaser. <laughs> oh, God. She it's, wasn't even trying to not vomit. <laughs> the, when you start looking at this movie structurally as a queer film, and I'm sorry, yes, that's what I do, but <laughs> it is so... Queer is in yes. other, right? Queer yeah. is in outside of the mainstream. This yeah. and, and knowing this movie, ha, this movie's backstory has backstory. Have you ever been in a flashback in a movie that flashes back farther? Welcome <laughs> yeah. to Black Xmas. <laughs> How oh my many gosh! Times I literally cut back to the past. <laughs> I made a note about this. It's so funny to say that. I literally was tracking in the first. For I re- literally wrote here first thirty minutes. There's three flashbacks. This is the first 30 minutes of this movie. Three flashbacks in the first 30 minutes. And also this this movie like is relentless. It starts with a kill and does not stop. Like the pacing of this is insane. It does not let up once. And it's just like one after another after another. And it's really good at setups and payoffs. That's always something I'm looking for in movies. It's so, there's so many throughout the whole thing that I love. And I love the like, the as much as it's trying to do something different there's still these like beautiful homages to the original like specifically in the cinematography the like voyeurism that Mm -hmm. is so famous in the first one seeing that kind of carry through here because almost all the perspectives of the camera are from someone else's so it's from someone just Mm. watching um but yes so many flashbacks and then also right before the third flashback i wrote fucking kyle on here (laughs) townie fucking kyle man (laughs) There, there are so many Fucking red Kyle. herrings. There are so many yes! red herrings Poor in this Eve. movie. There are so, and so many yeah. eyeballs. Sorry, when but we, yes. No, when we, like, we meet <laughs> Eve, and it's like, well, surely Eve is a sinister figure. This entire house thinks so. Actually, she's, be. been de- actually she's been decapitated be. in her car. You, if The yeah. instant you meet Oliver Hudson, who's a full 10 years older than Katie Cassidy in real life, who is the townie that is dating the sorority girl in this mismatch of a relationship where like, who knows how long they've been together, but this is their first Christmas together. And he's like, I'm your family now. It's like, bitch, has it been two months? How long has it even been? (laughs) You're like, can you imagine a guy that you just started dating saying that? No, no. I can't even, how many years do you have to be together before that's not weird? (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. I would go into witness fucking protection if that happened. I, like, you're, you're, like, you meet Kyle, and you're immediately like, well, Kyle's Billy. And then you meet Kristen Cloak, and you're like, well, she's in the original. And you, like, you meet Eve, you're like, she's the bad guy. There are so many things in this movie that are, they're not, they're not loose ends. They're not, like, they're not plot holes that have been left. I feel like they are intentional diversions that somehow it packs in so many across the course of 80 minutes that it leaves you being, like, spun the fuck around to the time you finally get to the obvious answer which is the real answer in the movie you're like shit that planted a lot of seeds of doubt in me along the way amidst the so many flashbacks yes i if (laughs) if i can i would like to tell you (laughs) my assessment of how this is odds because or why why this is this is the only example of a killer in the odds that i love hearing the backstory of so something that is like mm-hmm. so, so like uh, definitive about this era is Killer's Got Backstories. We have Rob yeah. Zombie coming in here and telling yeah, us about totally. Michael Myers' stripper mom. And from that moment on, it's like everybody, we got to hear all about their painful past and yeah. their sad mysteries, right? And their like, sad I fucking mysteries. Yeah. In Black Christmas, they were like, fine, you want a backstory? We're going to hit the fucking gas. Here's five backstories and yeah. we're going to light it all in blue. You know, you spoiled bitches. You come here for a couple of years and you leave. I live here. I stay here. I used to play on this street before they turned them into frat houses. This was the house that scared the shit out of us. My whole life. What happened? You mean after he washed down his Christmas cookies with a glass of milk? You know, it was like- <laughs> And they're so it, fucked up. It was up. so extreme that it was like, it was too much. It's too much from from beginning to end. <laughs> this, the reason why, and and then in, in the too much theme, I feel like what they did was they watched the first movie, and and honestly, it's what what Blumhouse is doing now. But uh-huh. it was doing it before 
And I think it may have pioneered it in some ways because I don't think that people were thinking about remakes in these terms. Black Xmas is mm-hmm. more of a spiritual remake than an actual remake. Yeah, it yeah. is. It, yeah, it's like yeah. Blumhouse in taking this shell property mm-hmm. and picking out a few details that people might connect. So yes. an example is um, the best scare in the original Black Christmas no doubt, the eyeball in the door. It's a yeah. close-up of an eyeball. It makes you jump out of your seat. Now, rather than remake the eyeball scare, they decide to include eyeballs in like nine different times in the movie. There's Constant. an eyeball screensaver. There's a kill where in the in the in the UK release, they're dragged by the eyeball. There's an eyeball that's gouged out. There's like it's there. I think is there, there are so many Christmas eyeballs that are gouged out. Agnes eats eyeballs. Everybody is stabbed yes. through the eyes. And it comes from a lot from of, of giallo eye trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not unconnected. It's just they take it no. and then they hit the gas and make it extra. And and that to my last point, which I think is why it connects with so many queer people, or at least I can speak for myself, why it's why it connects with me and my friends. It looked at the original Black Christmas and was like, this is a film about chosen family. It's mm-hmm. a group of sorority girls mm-hmm. at home, at, at who are whose parents have pushed them out. It's like. One, like Margot Kidder, do you guys want to go on a ski ski trip? Because her her mom's a real gold plated whore mother, right? Like yeah, in that yeah. in that clip, that's what they took and they put it on this movie, which is about a bunch of women who don't like each other at first because <laughs> at that's first. what the two thousands. That's the only way they can write women in the two thousands. Yeah, the the, but, and the the most the most right, guaranteed right. unifying aspect of a group of friends in the two thousands was that they all fucking hated each other and they yeah. were all other. mean to each other. Like the movie yes. Cry Wolf is built around the premise that all of these people are pieces of shit and they're stuck in the same place and they are in a forced community so by taking that theme of chosen family and threading it through with the explicit quote you're my family now i think (laughs) is it it 12 or 17 times jordan we're gonna find out when i make i'm gonna make a super cut of the you're my family yes from this movie so those are your guesses on records are 12 or 17 she's my family now she's my family now Girl, like my family now. She's my family now. I'm your family now. She's my family now. You're my family now. Yeah, there's no in between. It's oh twelve God, or yes. it's seventeen times. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and but but that spe- that specifically speaks to not only the queer theme of chosen family when so many of us have been rejected by our own families and dread the holidays or going home for the holidays, but also just the queerness of saying it that many times explicitly. Again, that is drag. This movie is a drag show. And the and the the least redeemable sister of the bunch is the only one who makes it a point of saying, at least my family wants me around. She's the only one with a good nuclear family intact that like wants her to come home and that she's looking forward to seeing. And they all meet they again, death's off screen. We don't even see Mary Elizabeth Winstead meet her demise, but she's the only one yeah. that they don't ever really bring around. And the last thing we hear before she like before she expires is the brilliant Andrea Martin like scraping ice off of her windshield, being like bitch, frigid southern princess. She's like ripping her apart before she gets killed by Billy, by, by Agnes. And it is just so like the the those who are sort of orphaned by their circumstances whether like literally or existentially are the ones who like we at least come around to a rooting interest for like we see like Lacey Chabert's character is sort of like as she remarks to Kristen Cloak when they're like on a sort of mission around the house to like they're they're investigating something I think they're like looking to turn the lights back on and she's like what I'm not the totally helpless daddy's girl these bitches make me out to be so she makes it a point of being like, you know what? I'm more than like I seem. And she really immediately is. And who among us cannot relate to being drawn to the mean pretty girl who walks into the room wearing a fabulous coat and has an amazing jaw? And what else is queer about this movie? Lacey Chabert interrupting Kristen Cloak being mean to say, I love that coat. That is, <laughs> like you said, Sam, this is a drag show. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that you brought, like we we haven't, speaking of, looking for cameos is Andrea Martin. The fact that we actually get our original Phil from yes. the OG Black Christmas yes. in this yes. as Mrs. Mack, who's like mm-hmm. iconic in the 
original, but um, yeah. I loved that we did get that. Like, I think that's definitely them kind of knowing, okay, we're doing a remake. That's always a risk, but at least this is a little bit of some fan service specifically. I will say I do mm-hmm. very much miss Claude, the cat, um, in this movie, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> But I love that they that they did that, and also and and she's great. I think Andrew Martin's great in it, and the teddy she gets for Christmas. Oh my the god, she's Secret so cherries. She's I owned a- that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andrew Martin it. is such an incredible <laughs> introduction. It's such an incredible appearance in this movie because Andrea Martin is a legend. Andrea Martin is so talented. God, she's good, and just like the texture that she adds to this house in the same way, in a similar way to. Um, Carrie Fisher showing up in Sorority Row and being the no bullshit house mom of all those like, again, mean kids that she has to supervise over. But Andrea Martin being the inverse here of just really trying to create the sense of family over and over again and having the incredible moment where she just gets mad at some of her cursing and goes, language, language, (laughs) is a remarkable moment in in Ozterion. I, I want to take a moment and I want to, I've, I've literally shouted about it already in this conversation, but I need to take a moment for the ascendance of Katie Cassidy's character to yes. becoming, yeah. becoming this movie's official final girl, Be- Kelly coming into her own the, in a scene that just looks beautiful. The power is out, but the fire is raging in the living room in the fireplace. And Andrea Martin's character, house mom, is like, we've got to get out of here. We've all got to go now. And Kelly comes forward and is like, no. Shit, Lauren, let's go. No, we stay together. We lock up the house. We grab a fireplace poker or ski pole or some shit. And for the next two hours, not let each other out of our sights. No, we are driving to the police station. In this weather? Even if they can't do anything, at least we will all be safe there. Dad, we're not all here. If we were, then I would go. That's right. Unless I see otherwise, I'm believing that Claire is alive. And when she comes back, it is not going to be to an empty house. And she goes from sort of like, she hasn't, she, it gets played perfectly. And Katie Cassidy starts out as like the good neutral blonde who's just really happy to have a family around her because she doesn't have one of her own. Her creepy boyfriend absolutely does not cut the mustard in that regard. And she takes that moment and becomes the leader of the girls. And she is making her stand. She's taking that, she's making that declaration on the back of, these are my friends and I will protect them because that is what we do for each other. And the fact that this movie revolves around like planting a flag in friendship as the thing worth putting yourself in harm's way for and in enduring the terrorizing nature of at least one serial killer picking off people in your house. It's an incredible moment. And it invests me so much in Kelly for the rest of the movie in a way that I think Katie Cassidy completely validates that investment and does such a great job. And I mourn the fact that she, in like, I think it was maybe her first film in When a Stranger Calls, that she was not the lead of that movie. Because if Katie Cassidy had been the final girl of When a Stranger Calls, I actually (laughs) would have liked it. And I wouldn't, it's hard. I want the parallel universes to exist in which I get Rooney Mara being the final girl of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010. While I also get Katie Cassidy (laughs) being the final girl of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010. Her and Kyle Gallner would have been a great pair. She deserved to have been a defining final, recurring final girl of the 2000s. And I, on her behalf, am mad that she didn't get those opportunities because she was clearly, clearly the standout final blonde in each of those situations. So shouts out to Katie Cassidy. You deserved better in the 2000s. Had to say it. (laughs) She gives us my favorite moment. (laughs) What is it, Sam? What's your favorite? I would love to, like, will this into existence as a callback. But... When my friends and I watch, there's a scene where Katie Cassidy totally takes charge and Mm -hmm. uh, she calls 911 and actually gets through. Mm -hmm. You can't hear the operator, but you can hear her. (laughs) So Katie Cassidy frantically is like, hello. And she explains, or she explains what's going on. uh, And then uh, go, you just hear. Yes. Yes. I know her. And it's like. What the fuck did the operator ask you? (laughs) So my friends and I, in that pause, shout the dialogue that had to have been the operator, which is, um, but ma'am, did you know the victim? 
<laughs> yes. Yes, I know her. That, uh, yeah, that sounds, I feel like that, that, yes, I know her is the don't you say that to me of yes! Xmas for <laughs> Sam. <laughs> that is it. The idiosyncratic yes. stand outline for Sam of this movie. <laughs> There's always one. I, I, in my, in my perfect world, I get it. It's a savage time and I get it. You know, it, we're still in an era when there can only be one. I, in my, in my fantasy play out of how this movie goes, Kristen Cloak does actually live. I still am mm. sad that her character yeah. does, because by that time, they are the only two survivors and it has become clear they're very much bonded. And in one of the movie's best family oriented moments, Oliver Hudson, Kyle, who has been absolutely horrible to everyone in this house multiple times in this movie. Yeah, Merry Christmas, asshole. Fuck all you bitches. Get out of here now! Get out of here! And yet is still, like, welcome back around when he seems to keep showing up. Like, Katie Cassidy is like, like, this is my, you know, she's missing. If it were my sister, I would want her to come for me because they're looking for Kristen Cloak's little sister who was, like, the first death in the movie. She's like, I would want her to come for me. And Oliver, her boyfriend again, very cruelly goes, yeah, if I had a sister, I would expect her to come with you. How would you know you don't have a sister? And then in mm-hmm. an amazing line delivery, yes. Kristen Cloak looks at him with death in her eyes and just goes, it's like practically sotto voce. The way she just side eyes him and goes, she does. It's like, oh my, my heart. God, I'm emotional. They become, they do become sisters in that moment. They make it all the way to the hospital together. Kristen is at her bedside, like holding Katie Cassidy's hand and opening the gift that her now dead half sister was going to give to her and they're crying together. I wish she would have lived, man. That was even too cruel for the 2000s for me. <laughs> it was also the the there are so many incredible set pieces in this movie like the oh, stunt God. of falling in in the um between the walls in the house and like trying to get out of there like I that's one of my favorite moments and also this has like one of the most beautiful icon like endings of Billy like impaled yeah. on oh. the Christmas tree and the lights you can see yep. his silhouette behind uh Katie's like with the lights and also Every frame yeah, of this because, movie yeah, is Christmas, he goes including over the, the he goes hospital. Over the railing. He lands, yeah, he lands on the Christmas tree topper. His body's laying impaled atop the tree, and then we got to what is absolutely from... the most durable tree. The oh most God, yeah, fake uh, tree yes, we've ever that's seen. a that's a fucking redwood right there. And the, then we turn around, and Katie Cassidy is leaning over the railing, looking at him in her hospital robe, and we just see the yep. silhouette of Billy blinking in and out with alternating like red, green, and yellow mm-hmm. lights. His body hanging, his body's silhouette sitting next to her like bereaved face in the frame. It is an incredible final shot. And I like really appreciated, like you, you knew you were, we were coming around like in the third act that things. It, it's not over till it's over kind of moment. Like you knew things were going to happen <laughs> yeah. at the very end. I do very much appreciate that there isn't an additional like, like jump scare necessarily. Me too. Like how yeah. it kind of goes out is like this like almost like somber moment, kind of akin to the first one, how we end mm-hmm. with the first one where it's the like, you, you think he's still in the house, like, you know, but she's there. Uh-huh. It's that push. And all that. So it's like, it's reminded me a lot of, of that. Like you have a kind of quiet moment, which I like it is very quiet much appreciated. Yeah. And it's uncommon, I think for the era. As Sam said earlier, it's the climax and then everybody leaves and you're just like, Oh wow. You're really left to like, I mean, because of what we know about her family now, you are truly left to ponder the loneliness of Kelly. <laughs> Yeah. As you just hear, like, this movie does such a good job of incorporating Christmas and does such a good job of ambiently creating Christmas, like, in every sort of feeling and frame. And the way that it incorporates the Christmas music as something that turns it so sinister is obviously something you need to do for this movie, but it does it so well. Add one thing about the ending, because as beautiful as it is, it's a little bit different than the ending the rest of the world got. <laughs> so, you know, much like, uh, like a lot of films in the 2000s, um, which I'm sure we'll get into in here, but the the ending is just different for us. Um, so uh, in this 
in the UK, it was actually released with like a really nice emotional moment between Lee and uh, opening the present from her sister. Yeah. And uh, and she has to go down to the morgue and identify Agnes's body. Oh. And which, why? They're not family. Well, yeah. I guess they're all family <laughs> Well, now, they're all family now. <laughs> she, and when she unzips it, it's actually Claire's body. And she's like, that's not who was in this bag. And then there's this whole thing in the showdown. Anyways, uh, it's it's different. You can see all of it in pieces in the DVD. In the, uh, DVD, the DVD, yeah. As like alternate. T- yeah. It's all there. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, and it actually, but I guess it ends on a camera zooming in on a sign that says peace on earth. And Kelly like actually gets home, like goes home with her parents. Anyways, I am dying to see it because apparently it's a superior cut. It's only an hour and 14 minutes without credits. It's shorter. The deaths are more gruesome. It incorporates all the extra deaths. And then the ending is this like more emotional moment between the women. I'm like, give it to me. I want to see this now. Where's that? This is the UK version? (laughs) The UK version. Because I don't think this is the German version. The German version is just the (laughs) theatrical US cut. So if you want to actually see the theatrical US cut again, which because the the release on blue or DVD is different. You have to get that one. I I do like this, this movie. I feel like why this movie we've, we've already given the reasons, but like why this movie is, is Oxterion to me is we say this, this comes up on this pod, but this is one of those prime examples of the audacity, but like (laughs) the audacity to give you that moment of Kelly and Lee in the hospital bed with both of them crying and holding hands, implicitly being family now is so mean. Like, it takes the meanness of the 2000s and I think gives us an actual, it gives us, a, it gives us an example of how that can be harnessed effectively for narrative success and for, like, horror shock value in a way that doesn't just feel tacked on because everything had to be so cruel at the time. It does actually make the arcs feel more rewarding. It does actually make you feel... Like, the emotional investment of these two women and one another by the end is something they had to fight and claw for and that it is an exceptional thing in their lives. And it look, I mean, again, it, it takes to that intensely vibrant color palette of the time and makes it look, like, romantic and holiday festive and, like, a light you'd actually yeah. want to be bathed in instead of one that was indicative of, like, you on your deathbed. And, like, the very sad mystery, like you said, Sam, is compounding sad mysteries. It is child neglect, then child abuse, then incest, then, then like, watching your one of your parents kill the other one then killing your getting own mom getting an ugly doll for get, christmas that getting was an, an ugly, ugly doll. doll here killing your own mom and then eating pieces of her and then incorporating a joke into the movie that says they made the chicken for billy because it's the closest they could get to having it taste like mom Tastes not like, like mom. mom used to make <laughs> but like nope. mom like and billy is yellow because of a bright yellow like He's like yellow bast that yellow bastard from Sin City levels of yellow. Oh my god. And they just keep him that the entire movie. The way that this film incorporates um I talked about earlier the palette of Ott's tropes. Oh god. I think is uh it's masterfully done. And I think when we were in that moment, we weren't able to see it for what it was because Mm-mm. we were experiencing it and maybe we we're bombarded by it. And sometimes it felt saturated. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I maybe felt opposed to what I was seeing instead of being able to embrace the fact that it was taking those tools and yes, anding it. Yes. It is just constantly Mm -hmm. one upping everything that was happening around it. And that to me is what makes this an essential film for people who are studying aughts horror Mm -hmm. to investigate. I simply love it. I, I mean, like there much, much like the the mandate to do this for us anyway for this podcast was that this is a. I feel like this is a uniquely, this is an era that is uniquely benefits from hindsight, because like Sam said, yes. like being in the middle of it at the time, uh, we were saturated in this culture and with actually more tools to know how to dissect pop culture now and and have that being done at a constant mainstream level, like a constant clip on Twitter. These movies benefit from being comment commentary on the era in which they were made and existing as time capsules of that space in pop culture. And I think are so, they were fun at the time and I know I had a great time, but really looking at them, I don't think I ever could have projected how valuable they would yes. be as these anthropological artifacts to 
celebrate once again to find more deep ways to enjoy them and then to dissect as these because they were so big and brash and the set pieces were amazing and the budgets were high and the casts were high profile these were the mainstream things of the time these weren't record crate things that you had to dig up and find and I just think they it, it is such a fascinating time in the genre that truly did not stick the landing in the moment but in looking back I think is people are rediscovering such a joy of this era of sleepover horror that they were like, fuck, I knew I liked it at the time, but like, turns out I love this shit and it's actually kind of awesome. And that goes like... It it throws its best tricks and it throws them hard. (laughs) Oh my God, yes. But that, what you're saying about like... If you're going to eat Matt, eat Matt hard. If you're going to eat Matt, (laughs) eat Matt hard. Floor it, Haley. Floor it. (laughs) But that also goes along, like when you're talking about you bring, like... To me, this is a movie, like, I would watch with my girlfriends, like, at a slumber party, come over, let's watch Black Christmas. Again, like, the whole Mm -hmm. reason I, like, made Satanic Panic the way it is is because I want it to be one of those kind of movies. So it's like, this is why this movie is, like, so personal to me. And seeing it Mm -hmm. at a time when I was in film school and talking to my fellow classmates about this movie, and they're like... Uh, well, first off, everyone shit on horror anyways in film school. But I was like, you know, you don't understand. This movie speaks to me. And they're like, yeah, okay, cool. But I also want to like, I want to take a little moment to talk about um, Glenn Morgan. Because I think he was like, it's it's kind of, it's a little bit sad in a way to me. Because, okay, he, he first off, the only two films he's directed are both remakes of 70s horror Willard and Black Christmas. <laughs> so yeah. those are the two that he's remade. Willard, f- even though like fans liked it, critically it totally flopped. Yeah. And they said there's not enough scares. Obviously Crispin Glover isn't for everyone. So there was like a lot of uh, issues with that. And that was in mm-hmm. 2003. And then he did this in 2006. And, you know, he, if you watch the... um if you have, if you can track down the DVD, I highly recommend watching. There's like two like making of special features, which are awesome, mm-hmm. and they all look like everyone looks like they're having an amazing time. The actresses talk so. about working with Glenn and how wonderful it is to work with him. And you know, at the end, like the last of the like making of clip, he talks about because this is before the movie came out. They made these like featurettes, and mm-hmm. he says after Willard, he didn't know if he would get to make another movie again. And basically they were like, how do you think about that Black Christmas is going to do? And he basically said, if this doesn't make any money, I will, it will become film jail, like death row for me. And he hasn't. Oh. Yeah. Which as a filmmaker breaks my heart because literally he's like saying, which as we know, if you make a, a, a quote unquote, like big budget movie, P.S. Like according to IMDb, the budget of this is 9 million. So in in 2020 speak that doesn't seem like that much but um but that is a studio film and and if that movie like if you make a movie for a studio that doesn't make money yes they put you in director jail that happens Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think it grossed i wrote it down um opening weekend three million and change and Gross domestic was 16, worldwide was 21. So it probably broke even if you think about like P&A, like what the cost was. So it probably broke even. But yeah. he didn't, he has, that was 2006. He has not directed another movie. You, that's why like as a filmmaker, it's, it's, you just, you work on a movie, you get it out there because you never know when it's going to be your last one. When it could be, when you could not get a chance to to make one again. Anyways, it just like really breaks my heart, but I I do think he made something that was like at least if it's like if you can reach one person. <laughs> like for me personally, this movie made such an impression on me. It's like it's like one of the like inspired me so much and it's like Sam and I sh- and and Jordan you too probably share a love of Christmas and horror and Christmas horror together. Mm-hmm. And so right. these movies yeah, are like yeah. very you special to us. yeah Mm -hmm. and so I'm just so happy that this is like getting some notice again and like now in the holiday season revisit this like I I don't know I'm sure you can find it on Amazon to rent it will probably be the U.S. theatrical yeah but like I want people to track this down I want to revisit it and also I'm all about something that's fun that's what Mm -hmm. we need in fucking 2020 
And this movie delivers on that tenfold. It's fucking insane. It's batshit crazy. It is wild. And it is Mm -hmm. like no other movie out there. I'm done. (laughs) I think that, Chelsea, that is such a great note to end on. Yeah. Yeah. And so which would lead us to our, which would lead us to our, our parting words of where we can find one another. Chelsea, where would you like people to find you? What would you like them to look up about you? Um, you can find me at one place. It's Instagram, Chelsea Stardust. Very simple. Um, I don't do any, I don't check or use anything else. You can find me at Sam Weinman uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, and you can find me uh, at Jorcrew on Twitter, J-O-R-C-R-U. And you know what? You can find me on Patreon, too, at patreon.com slash Cruciola, where you can pay me money for the good work I do, which includes the work you can do here. And because they're not saying it, I will. You can find Sam's short film, The Quiet Room, in many places. Shudder among them. And you can find Chelsea's films. I think both of them are on Hulu. It's, all That We Destroy is on Hulu. Is Satanic Panic on Hulu? I think it's on Shudder. And in the spirit of Christmas, uh, a film, I'm in December. So a segment of mine, Milk yes! and Cookies. Just uh, December is a feature film anthology. Um, and I'm number 16. So hang in there. Yeah. Sweet 16. That is, it's 24, yes. 20, it's 25 segments, right? For Christmas Day or 24? Uh, it's 24 and then two after the credits. 24 and then two after the credits. All of them different filmmakers. So you can get a taste of a bunch of different people making Christmas horror if you check out December. Oh, I feel like if we're going to pitch, pitch Christmas horror things, um, I did a radio play called Christmas Eve a couple years ago. That's, um, it is Christmas horror. It's Mad Men meets Silent Night, Deadly Night. And it is on, <laughs> it is, uh, uh, I think it's on um, Bandcamp, but regardless, I'll be reposting it on my Instagram. So you will be able to find where it is. I think if you Googled like Christmas Eve radio play, play oh, it's on Earbud. Excuse me. It's on Earbud Theater. If you just Google Christmas Eve radio play Chelsea Stardust, you will find it. Um, and also Sam Wyman has Christmas albums that I highly recommend you check out and listen to. That is true. <laughs> oh, we have so, so, there's so much, we have given you such a, like a list of Christmas culture that you can take in. So now you have, now you have the rest of your holiday season to, to absorb Get on the Oregon Trail. Get on that Oregon Trail, become that pioneer. And Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing us the gift of Black Christmas. Thank you for having me. I am so honored. Long live Millennium Horror.